Hi, friends. This is episode 46 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for coming back to another episode of the Bible Lab it is so much fun going through these parables of Christ, and I can't wait for us to get into today's, the parable of the ten minus. This is in no way the same parable as the parable of the ten talents, and you're going to see why. Jesus tells it at a specific time to a specific audience to tell them more about his character. Now, we also want to remind you, Head on over to our website, thebiblelab.com, and get your study guide so you can follow along. We can't wait to see how this blesses your life. Welcome to the Bible Lab. All right, you guys ready to go? Here we go. Number one, I'm more excited about Jesus' second coming than the person sitting next to me. Hmm. Wow. So I see, I see more maybes than I have ever seen in my entire life. I'm seeing a lot of purple and green. All you parents, you know that it looks like Barney. It looks like I'm looking at Barney out here, purple and green. But a vast majority of maybes, it looked to me to be about 70% maybe. And we all know what that means. It means yes, but you just don't want the person next to you to pick a fight. So I'm going to look here and say the vast majority of you are saying, yes, you are more excited than the person next to you about Jesus' second coming. Number two, Jesus is coming within my lifetime. Jesus is coming within my lifetime. Wow, this is not what I expected. Once again, 70% maybe. About 20% yes, and about 10% no. Hmm. What's this church all about? Ah, man, I'm hearing all kinds of answers. Yeah. If it was during your childhood, of course, it would all be about prophecy and the second coming, right? Something's happened. There's a shift, and you're, you're responding to that shift with, well, I don't know, maybe, how soon is soon? People ask me all the time, when's, when's this going to be done? When's, when's our new building project going to be done? When are we going to do this? And I, and I always say, soon. And they say, when's that? I say, in between now and when Jesus comes again. <laughs> That's when it's going to get done. Number three, Jesus is coming within the next 10 years. Once again, I'm seeing the same response, only we're going a little bit more to maybe. I'm seeing about 85% maybe. I'm seeing it look like uh, the, the remainder, the yeses out nudge the noes, even though Jeff was shaking his no. I can't count it twice, buddy. I'm sorry. So we're getting even more maybe. Let's see what happens next. And number four, Jesus is coming this year. Okay. So it is a sea of purple, but it looks to me to be 80% maybe, 15% no, and a couple of yeses. What's the name of this church? And don't say Loma Linda University Church. 
You know, earlier I said the maybes meant yes. But if we're all honest, we know the maybes mean no now. As we've gotten down closer, closer, closer to Jesus is coming within this year, the maybes have switched from yeses to no, haven't they? Byron is adamantly saying no. His maybe meant yes. Well, then, Byron, you should have raised a yes. <laughs> okay. He, he switched. You, you can change. Good. But I guarantee that a majority of you, you're here, which shows a sense of expectation of Jesus doing something in your life today. But my question is, is does that expectation include dropping everything and going to heaven? And if we were to be honest, for many of us, soon has just gone on too long. Soon doesn't have the same meaning that it had in the 70s, for some of your younger people in the 90s. It doesn't have the same meaning. I recall as a kid, everything was soon. I recall going to people's houses, and they'd have the slide projector out, and, and we we're going through Daniel and Revelation, and, and uh, it's here! And that was in the 70s. So what does it do to your faith when soon means not within my lifetime? How does it change the way you live? And how does it change your own expectations of what you're called to do in your lifetime? That's what we're going to cover today. Because in a very clear way, that's what Jesus was talking about in Luke 19, verses 11 to 26, which we're going to cover. Number five, last one. Jesus would prefer that we lose what he has given us rather than for us to live risky lives. I hear a lot of what? <laughs> yeah, this it's, it's, is a very open-ended. Am I talking about this or that? I'm so glad you're asking that because we're about to have a conversation. I'm seeing um, predominantly no, 65% no, and then the maybes and the yeses are, are an even split. So here's the question. How risky does God want you to be? Would he prefer that you lose what he gave you because you were too risky with what he gave you? Or would he prefer that you really protect what he gave you? Has he called you to protect or to be risky? And many of us would say protect. Because if you're too risky, there's this thing called gradualization. And you can bring something to the, into the church that really is leading us away from where God wanted us to be. And so many of us look at Christ's desire is for us to protect and not to be risky at all. So in order to get into the mindset of where Christ is going with this parable... We have to ask you a question to make sure where you are now, because you realize where you are now, why you're passionate about what you are, and, and the reason why your approach to this topic is the way it is, is because of your own life experience. And so we have to talk about the herd of elephants in the room. So does Jesus's second coming feel more imminent now, or did it feel closer when you were younger? And why? Let's hear where we are in a room. Does Jesus' second coming feel more imminent now, or did it feel closer when you were younger? Raise your comment cards or your question cards. We'll get a microphone right to you. I think that Jesus' second coming is more imminent now. 
and maybe it's because I've just seen more. But we are called as individuals and as a church to be ready. If I leave the Bible lab and I walk out to my car and I get hit by another car crossing Campus Street, Jesus, for me, is coming today. That's true. And so yeah. my call is to be ready. Mm-hmm. And having known that, because I know that now, I feel responsible to make sure that Pastor Roy is also ready. Please. Because the same thing could happen to you. Whether Absolutely. Jesus might not come for hundreds of years, but there's going to be a day for everybody where Jesus is going to be coming. We do not know the day or the hour. Uh, So we have to be ready for whenever that day comes. Absolutely. I love it. Perfect. Back here. Uh, First, let me say I love what you just said. Um, But I can remember very clearly in academy in the late 70s-ish, almost decided, I mean, seriously considering not going to college because why? Jesus was coming within, you know, the next year. I mean, everything was so bad. He had to be coming soon. And when you think of since then, how many more bad things have happened, you know, it just... Anyway, I just remember thinking, you know, it's just right around the corner. Yeah, Doesn't feel exactly. I, re- I remember going to, to funerals as a kid for some of the older people. They had gotten cancer, and, and some of the reasoning that was given for why that person died was because the time of trouble was here, and they wouldn't be able to survive it. They would be about 120 years old now. and Yeah, they were right. They probably wouldn't survive it. Harvey. When I was essentially preteen, if you had asked, would Jesus be coming in the next week, I would have said yes. His coming was really imminent. Now what's happened is you talked about 1970. I'll go back to 1950 uh, and then uh, 70 and 90. This thing has been going on and on. And I want to differentiate When is Jesus coming, and when do I want to be prepared to see him? I want to be prepared to see him today. Yes. When is he coming? That's not my problem. That's a totally different issue. Yes. And, you know, I agree with what's been said. Yes. A lot of love it cards went up for that, Harvey. You're, You're correct, because there was a group of people in the 70s who they saw the time of trouble, and they knew Jesus was coming. Now, 70s, I mean A.D. 70. Um, They had seen Christ face-to-face before. And so, yeah, there have been many generations that feel the same. Who was next? Was it over here? Yes, let's go over here. Randy. Yeah, I know growing up, I was very excited that Jesus was going to be coming soon. And I felt it was going to be any time now. As I got older, I recognized that soon changes. And now I ask a different question, and that is, when do I want Jesus to come? And as I think about that, part of me says, right now, this moment today, I am so sick and tired of all of the challenges and the problems that I see in this world that his return will end. I could not wait. I would love for him to come right now. There is, however, a part of me that says, oh, Lord, not yet. 
because there are people I know and love who've not yet made the decision to follow him. And Lord, please give them time to make that decision. Yeah. Ultimately, I'm glad it's not up to me. So. I love that, Randy. But that's also why not only your life occupation, but your life vocation at Quiet Hour Ministries is to make sure that the gospel is preached into all the world so that more people will have that opportunity. Thank you, Randy. Over here. Since I became Christian, um, we always, you know, I always was expecting Jesus Christ coming back soon. And uh, it's been like more than 25 years waiting. But uh, I just realized that um, the, my focus shouldn't be in when he's coming back. My focus should be where I'm at with him. How my life, I'm living my life that honors him every day. Because I can sooner lose my life in this world and go face him, you know, immediately than he's coming back. Yeah. So I got to be aware of that, how I'm going to live my life. till he calls me home or he comes back. You, you bring up such a great point, too. Because it, it's, it's revealing to us as we, as we mature spiritually, as we look at the reasons why we want Jesus to come again. Immature faith says, I want Jesus to come again so that I no longer have to live with the problems. Mature faith says, I want Jesus to live again so I no longer have to live without Christ face to face. And that's the difference between immature faith and mature faith. Immature faith says, I want heaven to come so all the bad goes away. Mature faith says, I want Jesus to come so all the good comes. <laughs> and people say, why, why can't we have both? Uh, I think, in essence, we can. But as long as our focus is to get rid of something in, in our life, uh, our sole focus is not to have Jesus Christ as our best friend in our life. And it's, I don't think until Jesus is best friend in our life and our sole focus that even in this life, people call it kingdom now, living, uh, in this life, the bad things just are not that bad. They're, they're not as prominent uh, in changing us in, in our life. We're here, Mike. I'm going to ask you a question. Oh, great. You didn't raise a question card. It was a comment card. Well, I have a question for you. Go for it. Do you have retirement through the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Do I do retirement through the Do Ad- you have retirement? Absolutely. Is my wife is a, very happy about that. Is, is that. is that anti-religious? Is that non-believing? Ah. That God's, God's not coming? Yeah, okay. I have two options. <laughs> and it's based, I asked this question when I was still a student, not even yet working. And I asked my professor, um, Bill Kilgore, who is just, I love him to death. Uh, at Southwestern. I asked him, how do you deal with this? Preaching Jesus is, is imminent and yet uh, prepare for the future. How do you live like that? And his quote was, you have to always live as if Jesus is coming today, but you also, uh, 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 no, that Jesus is not coming in your lifetime, but always have a bag packed. Okay. So I always have a bag packed. I'm ready to go to heaven. I can leave everything here behind. It's okay. My bag is packed. But you also have to prepare for the future because I have two options. I can either prepare for my retirement or 
I believe you have a guest bedroom in your house. <laughs> and my wife and I are very thankful for your hospitality. <laughs> so, yeah. Can we do something real quick? I, I see, the other, see the other cards, and we will get to it because it does fit within this. But can we go through the filters? Okay, Jack, you can talk. Yeah, okay, they turned you off. Red mic, here we go, Jack, go. Yeah, I know for a personal interest in Pastor Roy that on August the 24th, 2013, he was already making plans yeah. for this Bible app. You want to comment on that? I don't, but thank you. <laughs> he had his first heart attack. Yeah, and only heart attack. Thank you. And I'm about to have another one. Um, no, I, I literally died. Um, I, I died about five, five years ago. And um, it changed everything. It did change everything. Um, you, you can't keep the same perspective when the reality of death has happened and realizing how God provided for me a, a truly grace-filled opportunity to continue to do something that possibly would have meaning, to be able to, to help people connect with the God I love so much. And it changed everything, Jack. Um, and it helped me realize exactly what many of you have already said. You never know when soon is. Because soon uh, is very unpredictable. And although the sky is going to rip open in a very specific date, um, the, the end is nigh for each of us at a different time. And there will be a handful of us who will be around when that sky does rip open. Uh, but you're right, Jack. It, it changed everything on August 24, 2013 for me. Uh, Eleven and a half minutes they worked on me until they got a defibrillator. And uh, I thank God that, uh, that at the Drayson Center, where it happened, our health, health uh, club here at the hospital, uh, the medical community here, um, that they did have defibrillators, which many people had fought against because they were afraid of the legal ramifications of having them. And I'm very thankful for the, the few that really made sure it was there because now I'm here. But 11 and a half minutes, people have asked, so what did you see? <laughs> My standard response is, well, there were a lot of flames. It was pretty warm. There was a guy there with a pitchfork saying, no, 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 it's bad enough here already. <laughs> and then I came too. But that's not really what happened. As we look at scripture here, Christ is very, very concerned with you understanding this period of time, the time between the soon and the not yet. We're in the not yet, and soon is coming. And so he tells a parable in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 26. I want you to open up your Bibles. Be ready to highlight, take some notes. It's okay to write in your Bible. You realize the only thing that's disrespectful to put on your Bible is a layer of dust. And so it's okay to write in your Bible. 
Luke 19, verse 11 through 26 is where we're going to go through. You can open it up in your apps too, or if you are biblically challenged, please look at the screen. Verse 11, he says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Hmm. This parable, more than, uh, more than it should, is... It's accidentally uh, thought of as the parable of the talents. Parable of the talents is a different parable. It has some similar elements, but you can tell from what we just read. This is a different parable. It's told at a different time to a different crowd for a different reason. So the question is, what's he trying to say to this crowd at this time? And so we started out by saying, well, he was there and he tells the people, but we have to understand who are the people he's talking to? And what's his motivation to say it? So those of you who have your Bibles there, what happens just before this parable? Where is Jesus? Whose house? Zacchaeus' house. Okay? And at Zacchaeus' house, which is a shocker because no, no self-respecting rabbi would be at a tax collector's house. Okay? Because you would be spiritually unclean just touching anything in that house. And so your salvation would be lost just being there. And while he was in that house, Zacchaeus says, uh, I'm going to give back. If I've, if I've stolen from anybody, I'm going to give back four times what, what I took, which is an admission of guilt, by the way. If I have, well, I'm going to. What, why would you say it if you didn't think that you had? Jesus turns to him and says, today, surely salvation has come into this house. And there's this huge gasp in Zacchaeus' living room, because they realize if salvation can come to this house, it can surely come into mine. 
It is in that environment. And there's some debate whether this conversation continues in Zacchaeus' living room or as Jesus leaves that place and is on to the next. It's in this environment where people are saying, salvation is here. While he's on his way where? Jerusalem. He's on his way, and Mike just said, it's just before the triumphal entry. People are looking at him not simply as the healer anymore. They're looking at him as the king, the king to come. And it's in this environment that Jesus tells this parable. So look at the very beginning, verse 11, verse 12. Why did Jesus tell this parable? Just shout it out. It tells you right in the scripture. Why did he tell this, tell this parable? They thought the kingdom was near. It's here. Soon is now. We've been waiting for generation after generation to finally not have another nation with their boot on the back of our neck. Finally. We're sick of these Romans. We're going to get rid of them. And finally, Israel will be its own nation. So they're excited, very excited. And he tells a story. He says, a noble man went to receive his kingship. Now they knew the story. Extremely familiar story to them. Why? Because it's happened twice so far. In 40 BC, Herod had gone off to Rome to receive his kingship. What happens? He receives it and he comes back and he rules over that area. He has two sons. One of them is named Archelaus. Archelaus is horrible. He wants to make sure that he takes over his dad's rulership. He wants to be the next king there. So what does he do when the people start having a little unrest? He kills 3,000 Jews to prove he has the authority to do so. And he cancels their Passover feast. That's right. The Jews missed at least one Passover because of Archelaus. He leaves to go in 4 BC, he leaves to Rome to receive his kingship and come back. And he's trying to make sure and, and, and do so before his brother does. So he heads off. And during that time, they send a delegation to Rome to say, we don't want this guy to be the ruler over us. This happens in 4 BC. What else happens around that time? The birth of Christ. Exactly. Do you know why we have a census and why Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem and Jesus is born in Bethlehem? Other than it being God's plan, of course. But do you know why they had to go for a census? Archelaus. It's the beginning of his ethnarchy. He didn't get his kingship, but he is put over an ethnic group. And so it's because they're trying to figure out so what people groups do we have so we can even know who rules what? It's that reason that we have a census because of Archelaus. The people have complete, their lives have revolved around this transition of leadership. And because of that, when Jesus starts out his story, a king went off to receive kingship and a delegation went ahead to say, we don't want him over us. Everyone knew exactly who he was talking about, Archelaus. So the expectation of the listener is, oh yeah, this isn't going to end well because this guy's not coming back as king. The story says that this nobleman 
calls together 10 of his most trusted servants and he gives each one a mina. How much is a mina? It's 100 days wages. So a little over three months wages. And he says to them that he wants them to conduct business with the mina. There's a special word there, pragmatuosaste. Say that three times real fast. That word uh, and its derivative that you're going to see later on in the story, it's only used right here in all of Scripture. It's the only place this word occurs in all of the New Testament Greek. And so it's very, uh, it's very significant, the word that's used here. We're going to get to it in a second. But the nobleman says, conduct business while I'm away. Here's a mina for each of you ten. So then the citizens respond we, it says they hated him and sent a delegation after them. Your scripture is very polite because it doesn't translate exactly. In fact, when we get into the Pauline epistles, you're going to see that uh, e- even more. There's, there's more swearing in the Bible than you would ever know. Thank you, King James, for helping us keep it clean. Citizens respond in verse 14. We don't want this, and your Bible probably says man, right? We don't want this man to rule over us is the most common translation of it. Do you realize the word man is not there? It is a construct that leaves a blank. We don't want this blankety blank to be our king. We do that, don't we? You know, we don't even veggie cuss. We just put a blank there. Blankety blank. He's a blankety blank. You didn't have to say it, but we all filled in the blankety blank, right? It's a way of cussing without cussing. And so Jesus says, that the people said, we don't want this blankety-blank to be a ruler over us. That's how passionate they were. They were cussing mad. So then, nobleman returns, and he does receive the kingship. And everyone listening goes, whoa, whoa, this is a different story. We thought it was going to be Archelaus' story, but this is different. Because he does come back. And scripture says that he goes up and he asks them, what did you do with the mina? Now, this is where everything is lost in translation. Because many of us look at this and we see, he's looking to see how much percentage increase did you make with my mina, right? And we get that a lot from comparing it with the parable of the talents. How much more do you have? And especially us in the Western mindset with a capitalist mind, we look at this and we say, okay, how much money did you make? How successful were you? And we completely miss what... Christ is saying here. Because the word that he uses here, when he says, uh, what'd you do with it? Uh, it once again comes back to dia pragmatsu santo, which means how much business did you transact? Not how much money did you make, but how much business interaction, networking did you do? How open were you about being a business owned by me? Because in a time of upheaval, and the Middle East has always known upheaval, but during the time, if a Shah were to leave for a while and come back, and he would give to some of his trusted servants some money to do things, what you would have is you would have to open up a shop. And let's say you opened a rug shop. Your sign would not be your name's rug shop. It would be in the name of the Shah, the Shah's rug shop. And you would have to conduct business under his name, which means 
the delegation that does not like that leader would not do business with you, or they might even do some vandalism on your property because they don't like that guy. So what he's asking is not how much money did you make? He's asking how open were you about conducting business in my name during a time when people thought I'm never going to come back and be their king? How open were you at that? It's very obvious when you get down and he gives the reward. Oh, very well done. Because you've done this, I will give you that. Talk about that in a second. But there's a word that's used here that we translate, many of your translations say faithful. When he says you've been faithful in this, and so I'll give you that. The word is pistos, which we translate faithful, but the literal translation is responsible. You've, yes, you've been responsible, and because you've been responsible with the mina, I'm going to give you this. So let's stop here and let's take a break. What characteristic of the servants is rewarded? Is it their faithfulness or their level of capital success? You've already answered this, right? So the question is, what is the reward and what's it mean? So they're faithful. Does he give them a cut of the profit? Yes or no? In a way, what's he give them? He gives them cities. Okay, so your reward for being responsible and faithful with the investment he left with you and conducting business in an environment that does not want that king to, to rule over them, because you're rewarded for being open about your support of this king, he doesn't give you a cut of the money. He gives you all the money. He doesn't take any of the money, does he? Look at it again. In fact, he takes from the one who hid it and gives to the one who has 10. And the, and the complaint of the group is he already has 10. Now he has 11. The king doesn't take the money back, does he? You keep 100% of the profit. But I'm going to give you something else. What's he give him? Beyond cities, what does he give him? He gives him more responsibility. This is the part of the parable I hate the most. Because the more responsible you are with what you have, what you've been given, you will always get more responsibility. Because you're responsible, I will now make you more responsible. That's what the scripture says, literally. Because you're responsible, now you have more responsibilities. What are we trying to do with our entire life? We spoke about retirement earlier, uh, Mike. What we're trying to do is work ourselves to a place where we no longer have to be responsible, Right? Now it's your turn, next generation. You're responsible. But Jesus says, if you're responsible with what I give you, and you're open about what I give you during a time when the people say, I'm never coming back, when I come back, I'm going to give you more responsibility. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I don't see a lot of cards on that one. So before we move on um, to the last part, what, anybody want to comment about that? How do you feel? Because this is different. This is much different from how we typically um, view it. Yes, Sherry. I think this is really putting it to the old people. Um, when particularly, no, really, because 
particularly when a, a, a man retires, he feels like he loses his whole identity. And as anybody gets older and older, they feel that they are less and less able. But if we've all been faithful, that means that our responsibility increases, not decreases. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. That's perfect application. I want you to see what happens next in the story, because this is the other part that's really, really missed. And then we'll come to you, Harvey, okay? Now, first of all, how many servants do we hear from when the king comes back? Oh, wait a minute. How many did we start with? And we only hear back from three. What happened to Numbers 4 through 10? <laughs> lost at sea. Yeah, Carolyn says lost at sea. What did they do with the money they were given? The assumption is that they never expected the king to come back, and they spent it on themselves. They upgraded their homes, got a nicer chariot, paid off their kids' college, whatever they did. They spent the money on themselves because they cannot be found when the king comes back. They never expected him to come back, and they spent it. Which tells us something else because we've demonized the third one. But the third one, has he been faithful or unfaithful? He has been faithful. He has been faithful. He, he is not a person that says, I didn't expect you to come back. He expected the king to come back. That's why he protected the coin. And something you have to understand, this third servant was so protective of that mina. He didn't bury it, did he? The Talmud says uh, the best place for, for a treasure is to bury it. That's why in the parable of the talents, it's buried. In this one, it's not buried. There's a special word. We, we use a fold in a napkin or in a piece of cloth. Um, the word that's used there is actually uh, sudarion. That's actually the headscarf that then the cloth actually comes down around your, your neck and your chest area. And what many of the guys would do is they would take the part that comes around your neck and closest to your heart, and they would fold that, wrap that around, twist it, and then put over their shoulder whatever was their most prized possession. Because in order for you to get it, you would have to kill them for it. This man was not unfaithful. He says, I stake my life on this mina. You cannot take this mina from me. It's so valuable that I will never risk this mina. Because when the king comes back, I want to show him, I never once let it out of my possession. I am the most loyal servant you have. He's not disloyal. He says, I stake my life on giving this mina back untouched, unharmed, untarnished. I'm not going to give you a portion of it. I'm going to give you all of it back. He says something in response that we take as a complete put down. What does he say in response? No, no, I'm not talking about the master. I'm, I apologize. I'm talking about the servant. What does he say to the master? I know you're a hard man. Take up what you didn't reap. Take what you didn't stow. He says, I knew you as a thief. That's how we hear it. But you realize that was probably one of the greatest compliments that he possibly could have thought of to give to the nobleman. You know why? 
Because in their mindset, the Bedouin mindset, was that you don't, oh, only the weak are out there sowing and harvesting. No, 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 the strong, they come in and they take what they didn't, they didn't sow. They don't sow. They take what's been harvested. In fact, in the Talmud, there's this incredible story about King David woke up about midnight because the, the wind blew into his room and, and the wind went across the harp strings and, and played some notes and it woke him up and he studied from midnight until sunrise. He studied scripture. One of his uh, trusted officials come in and says, the people are hungry. They need to eat. And David gave him a suggestion and the, and the, the guy said, that's, that's not going to be enough. So David says, well, let's go. Let's go into the neighboring uh, uh, the, the neighboring peoples and let's take what we didn't put in and let's reap what we didn't sow. It was a common phrase. And it was seen as you are blessed by God and stronger if you are the bandits that come in and are able to take whatever you need. This is a compliment he's trying to give. But the response of the master is, oh, okay, so this is how you know me. In fact, the word would be better uh, translated as saying, so this is how you've experienced me? This is your experience of who I am? So if that's your experience, if that's how you see me, I'm going to be fair to you. I'm going to allow myself to be exactly the version that you've created. You've created me in an image, and I will treat you the exact same way that you yourself have written my image to be. So if that's who you think I am, that's how you'll experience me in the future. How many times have we had conversations with people where how in the world could you possibly be a church member and think it's okay to treat people that way? How unloving that, how, where's the grace? Where's the love? Where? The reality is, whatever your picture of the king is, that is justice to you. So Jesus says, yeah, that's how God acts. If you build God into that image, that is the judgment you will receive. And the judgment that this man receives is not God's character, but is, is the character that the man created of God. Tells us, this is huge. Yeah, you realize what this means. It means if you justify that God is a cruel, harsh, exacting God, that is how you yourself will be judged. So what does it mean for us today? <laughs> What's God's greatest desire? God's greatest desire is to dwell with you. But God's greatest desire is to have business partners. That's a really cool corporation to be part of. Why? Because if he were to come back, and you were to say, I invested it, and I kind of lost some money. The question is not, how much did you earn the money? Uh, the, the question is, how much did you transact? It means that during a time when everyone thought the king is never coming, were you willing to risk everything, even what the king gave you? Because if you're willing to risk it, that's responsibility in God's eyes. Is that the biggest oxymoron in the world? The more risky you are, the more God sees you as responsible. Bizarre. God wants you to take risks in the open marketplace. 
knowing that not everyone's going to get it. And if you will simply take the risks in the place where you live to share and to be widely known as a supporter of the king who is coming back, despite what people say, that when he comes back, he will look at you and say, well done, not because of the number of baptisms you have or the number of Bible studies you've had, but because of how open you've been at expecting the king to come back to take everything he's given you and to say, I have to set up a sign that says, if you want to associate with the king's business, associate with me. And in doing so, it doesn't matter what your numbers are. What matters is how risky you're willing to be with what he's given you. And to me, that helps me relax a whole lot because it gives me the freedom to fail. The freedom to try things and not have numerical results, but the freedom to say, this is God's business, this isn't my business. And when he does come again, he's not going to ask, what numbers do you have? He's going to ask, how open were you at transacting the king's business? And in doing that, we can all relax and say, it doesn't matter if we completely flop in some of our transactions in the king's business. The only thing that matters is the king looking and, and asking, did you transact business? And you say, yeah, I did. And he looks down and he says, well done, you good and responsible servant. Because you've done that, guess what? Your influence has just, has just exploded. To me, that is the most beautiful picture of God because it tells me it's okay to fail. Just go take a risk. Boy, I don't know if that challenges you, but it definitely challenges me because I try to minimize as many risks as possible in my life. And it is such a unique thing to look at God who says, I would rather you take risk for me than to play it safe. So I challenge you not to play it safe this week and enjoy investing and making it known in your community that you conduct business on behalf of the King of Kings. Now, I hope that you come back for episode 46. It's going to be an awesome one. We actually talk about a parable that is poorly named. It's known as the rich fool, but you're going to see exactly what it really should be named in the coming episode. So please come back and continue this journey with us as we try to have conversations about the character of God. God bless you until then. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 1030 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.